0: We just stepped on their face with a hot boot and broke their nose. One, two, three. Ship. Welcome to the Tide Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, joining you today from the post office studios to answer my first round of mailbag questions. Starting with questions about the Atlanta Hawks and their recent moves and the draft circus and free agency going on in the NFL concerning our Atlanta Falcons. If you're new to the podcast, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or any major podcasting platform. Follow us on social media and email us, Support at gmail.com. All right, so, Billy, do you have a drop formula that's related to mail sounds like a You Got Mail drop from AOL or something? Nothing. You, you have nothing. Great. That's why we pay you what we do, Billy. All right, anyways, so this first question comes from my main man, Russ Mills, and it basically centers around the Hawks' progress under new coach Nate McMillan. But essentially, Russ asks, seeing the way the Hawks are playing now, do we believe that the Hawks tanked to get Lloyd Pierce out of town? So this question really centers around two players rumored to have beef with Pierce, uh, Trey Young and John Collins, Which this is, and this isn't news to anybody that's a Hawks fan. Um, my answer is short is no. I do not believe that these players tanked to get Lloyd Pierce out of town. Uh, John Collins is playing for a contract, probably a max contract. He's already turned down, reportedly, a four-year, $90 million contract. He's trying to get paid. Guys trying to get paid, don't tank. Guys in contract years, don't tank. And Trey Young, while there is good reason to think that he might have wanted Pierce out of town, considering that there's apparently some stories that Pierce did not advocate for Trey to make the Team USA basketball roster. And that word got back to Trey Young. And ever since then, he has been really opposed to Pierce's leadership. That's one of the rumors floating around. So it's easy to see how Trey, who knows that he is essentially untradeable and untouchable in the Hawks franchise, could do whatever he could to get his coach pushed out the door. It's not unreasonable. However, I don't think that narrative matches what I saw on the floor from him individually. Now, when you see how much better the Hawks are playing in fourth quarters and overall how much their execution has improved, it's easy to come to that conclusion. But when I see Trey Young taking charges in the fourth quarter of close games under Lloyd Pierce, I'm sorry, but nobody that's trying to get their coach canned is doing that. So I do understand why people might think that, but I just will have to say that That narrative does not match what my eyes saw as someone that watches nearly every game of Hawks basketball. So, there's that. But this kind of leads into the second question, which was, how much credit does Nate McMillan deserve for the turnaround? This is something Scott the Stat Assassin and I have been discussing over and over again. So, McMillan has fixed one of the two biggest problems facing the Hawks. First one is the fourth quarter. He has increased Trey's minutes, fixed a lot of the rotational anomalies, like putting Clint Capella in the closing lineups, which Lloyd Pierce was not doing for the first two months of the season. Um, He's given us a lot less of Solomon Hill, Brandon Goodwin, and Skylar Mays in the fourth quarter, and some of that wasn't his fault because it was necessitated by the biggest problems the Hawks have had this year, which is health. And, of course, the Hawks handed over the reins to McMillan the day before Bogdan Bogdanovich came back from injury. And McMillan had a fully healthy Rajon Rondo and Gallinari when uh, John was still on the team for the entire, uh, you know, 11-game tenure he's been our head coach. So he got better health, and he fixed some of the encore problems. And as much as some of the improved play is a result of playing a weak schedule, the Hawks have played 11 games, Nick McMillan as coach, and only two of them have been against teams with winning records. So that's been part of why they've been so good there's still evidence that he's making a real impact the Hawks offensive rating since he took over is 117.2 which is number six in the NBA their defensive rating is 108.4 which is number five in the NBA and they have a net rating of 8.8 which is second in the NBA over that time span now again there's factors there health has improved they played a very very easy part of the schedule but having said that Losing the teams that were not good was one of the things that got Lloyd Pierce canned. And I go back to that game in Cleveland a month ago, which was probably one of the death nails in his coffin. So overall, I think Nate deserves credit for getting the Hawks to play essentially up to what they should be at, which is around a 500 team. That's what we projected. That's what a lot of people projected for them preseason. That's essentially what they are. They are playing about at a 500 basketball level. I don't think they're as good as the stats over this short span indicate. I think they were drastically underachieving under Lloyd Pierce for a variety of reasons we've already discussed. And so I do think that Nate deserves some of the credit, although he's going to probably get all the credit when a lot of this progression and improvement was probably going to happen anyway when they started getting players back. So this leads to another question I was asked. Matt Whitaker, you asked this one, and what do I think about the Rondo trade? And I was never a fan of the Rondo signing. I've been on record saying that. Scott's been on record saying that. You got an aging veteran who's good in the playoffs, not very good in the regular season. He's in decline and he's and he's not a good fit with Trey Young because he can't shoot. So the Hawks essentially traded one declining vet that can't play with Trey for a better declining vet that can't play with Trey. And I'll take that. And Lou doesn't change the ceiling for the Hawks, but he's A, healthy, and B, a much better fit for the Hawks second unit. where well, you can surround him with Cam Reddish, Chris Dunn, Solomon Hill, and other defensive minded wings. Along with Gallinari, who's an offensive minded four, and you can have a pretty balanced lineup. And Ronald's like a shooting four, shooter around him with scoring. So playing him with a non shooter like Chris Dunn whenever he came back was going to be non tenable anyway. So I like this. I think he's a better fit for the Hawks. The Hawks don't truly need a backup point guard when you have Bogdanovich, Herder, and either Williams or Chris Dunn sharing the ball handling. I think that works. We already saw some scenarios where you had Herder and Bogdanovich sharing playmaking duties, and that actually worked pretty well. So I think this could potentially be a really, really good upgrade at the backup, and I'm doing air quotes here, point guard spot for the Hawks. Now, it needs to be said that this isn't 2017 Lou Williams. He's 34 years old. His shooting percentages are down. He's at 42% from the field, 38% from three-point line, and he's playing 22 minutes a game. He's not in those closing lines for the Clippers anymore like he was in his prime, you know. In 2019, where he probably should have been an all-star. So, it's a different Lou Williams. But he's still a good bench gun. And he's on a unit where he's not going to be asked to carry all the offensive load. There are other weapons on that unit. Kevin Herter, it looks like he's going to drop back to the second unit with the shooting slump that he's in. You've got a pretty good complement of weapons on that second unit that he can be added to. So, again, I like the move. I don't think it's groundbreaking, but I think it makes the Hawks better than they were a week ago. Now... Moving over to some questions about the Falcons. Discussed this with Russ. and I know, Russ, I hope you're listening, but um, we're essentially discussing, are the Falcons screwed after the Dolphins traded out of their pick and gave the 49ers the number three pick in the 2021 draft? You would assume to go take an heir apparent or replacement for Jimmy Garoppolo. There's a lot of differing opinions on this. For my money, the answer is no. The rumors are that the 49ers like Trey Lance, and if that's true... That means that either, A, the Falcons can grab Justin Fields at 4, or the Falcons can trade with a team like the Panthers or Broncos to move to 8 or 9, pick up additional picks, and let them take Justin Fields at 4. And one of the things you have to ask, let's say it's not Trey Lance that goes at 3. Let's say they take Justin Fields. Well, then you're left deciding between Mac Jones or Trey Lance if you're the Falcons. And the question I would have is, do you really want to take your fourth choice at quarterback with a top five pick? Drafting for need in that way is what's gotten the Falcons in the position they're in now. Trey Lance and Mac Jones, I think, are good prospects, but they are not top five prospects. Kyle Pitts is a better prospect. Patrick better is a better prospect than either of them. I would even argue Caleb Farley is a better prospect. They are probably top 20-ish players and you're taking them in the top five. That's not good value. And so what I prefer to see and what I hope happens is that the Falcons can work out a deal with the Broncos where the Falcons drop down to nine, pick up the number 35 or 34 pick, I think, whatever the Broncos pick in the second round, add a first next year and also bring over Drew Locke. Then you're killing two birds, one stone, getting a potential quarterback that you could train and build around and adding additional picks for this year. I love that idea. Don't know if that would work. But in short, I don't think the Falcons are completely screwed. Now, I will say this. Their options are limited. A lot of people are saying they won't make a trade to Carolina because it's in their division. That doesn't leave a lot of teams. Philadelphia got out of the quarterback market when they traded back to 12. The Saints aren't likely an option because, again, if you're saying you're not going to trade the division team, that rules them out. So it really leaves you with just a couple of options, teams like the Broncos or maybe even the Patriots, if they want to get up that high because some people are saying the Patriots really like Mac Jones. Who knows? So I think the Falcons have some limited options. I do think that this scenario does make trading back out of the number four pick more likely, which is a scenario that I really like. So keeping with that, Scott and I were talking about this. This is another question we got. Do we think the Falcons draft a running back? If the Falcons trade back in the 2021 draft, I will tell you that 100% they are drafting a running back. We just signed Mike Davis, who I think was a really underrated free agent signing. He's a perfect fit here. Cheap. He's cheap enough that you don't have to worry about wasting his contract if he doesn't play a lot. So if you make him your third tailback, you're paying him less than $3 million a year. That's not bad to have on your bench, okay? If you play him, he's in Carolina last year. He can be very productive. He's a good power back, better receiver than you think, put up over 600 rushing yards. I think he ended up with eight total touchdowns. Solid production for $3 million a year. Essentially, he put up Todd Gurley numbers. Now, if the Falcons stay pat, I think there is a chance they draft a running back, but I would say that it would probably be more in the fourth, fifth round area. and It would be a guy that they would take like a, as a developmental pick maybe some – Think like someone like a Brian Hill who's probably going to turn into an NFL running back but may not be when you draft them. But in that first scenario I mentioned, if the Falcons do trade back and get an extra second-round pick, I love Javante Williams from UNC. I think he is the best pure runner in the draft. Now, again, that's not necessarily the best running back in the draft. That is Najee Harris. But I think if you're just isolating his ability to run the ball – I think that he may be better than I think he may be better than Najee Harris, and I think he is actually a better pure runner than Travis Etienne. I think he's got better vision, he's got a little bit more power, better contact balance. He lacks Etienne's long speed, which is one of the things that pops when you watch Etienne in film. And I'd be happy with Travis Etienne, but I think Javante Williams would be a really good fit. And he's actually a pretty underrated receiver as well. Moving along, been asked this question also: Kyle Pitts at number four, is that too high? Is that a reach? Is he? Is it two? Is number four too high to take a tight end? Well, let me go ahead and let me go ahead and say this: Kyle Pitts is a unicorn. He, he he's not a tight end. He is a 6'6 hybrid Moss machine. In over 100 targets at Florida last year, he did not have a single drop. He's probably going to run four, five, or better when he gets his official times with Pro Day. And honestly, if you were rating him as a pure pass catcher. Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith are good prospects who I think are both going to be good pros. But you can find a Jamar Chase every year or two. Same with Devontae Smith. They don't make them like Kyle Pitts. The last tight end that you could think of that came out with Kyle Pitts' profile. I mean, who is that? Vernon Davis? I mean, the guy was just a matchup nightmare. And, yeah, there are tight ends in the NFL that, like, you know, you have Rob Gronkowski and prime Jimmy Graham and – prime Travis Kelsey right now and even George Kittle but none of those guys came in with this kind of hype none of those guys did those those guys, those guys weren't expected to be what they are or what they became nobody thought Travis Kelsey was going to become the most prolific catching tight end ever when he was drafted he's going to be a good tight end this guy we're saying coming in has the potential to be better than all of them so you have to understand that when you're drafting Kyle Pitts as number four you're drafting probably the second best offensive player in this draft after Trevor Lawrence Maybe the second best player in this draft at Trevor Lawrence. You're getting him at four. So it's not a need. I think he would fix a lot of your red zone problems. I think he'd be an absolutely phenomenal weapon that would team well with Hayden Hurst. And I'm not sure that I would go that route. But is number four too high to take Cal Pitts? I say no. Staying with the draft, what do we make of the UGA Pro Day for Eric Stokes, Aziz Ojolari, and Richard LeCount? Well, let's start by saying that Stokes is already a top 60 player. Running that 4 just solidifies him as probably a top 45 player. And, and, it could even possibly be enough to get him up to CB3. You look at most people's draft boards, it's Farley and Sertan in some order. I actually like Farley a little bit more than Sertan. I might be the minority there. Um, I think Farley has a little bit higher ceiling. I think Sertan has a much higher floor. But the CB3 is very much up for debate. Some people have it as JC Horn, who I'm not the biggest fan of. I mean, I think he's a good prospect. I probably wouldn't take him in the first round. And that's where you could see this 4-2-5 help Eric Stokes project into the late first round, or early second round. And it wasn't just the 40 time that, it, that came out of the pro day. People already knew Stokes fast. Um, it's that he weighed in 194 pounds, which was heavier than Tyson Campbell, and measured 33 inches with his arms, which is about an inch and a half longer than the average draftable court quarterback, according to mock draftable. So really, really strong physical tools, elite athleticism. Oh, and he's got good film. That's what it takes to sneak up into the first run. I think Stokes may have been able to do that and jump J.C. Horn for CB3. As for Ojolari, we, we said a few weeks back that he ran 4'6". He was going to go in the first round. So he ran right at 4'6", weighed 249 pounds, and measured with 34-inch arms, which is very, very good for a guy that's a little bit undersized at six, at six foot two. So I think Ojolari solidified himself as probably one of the top three edges in this draft, and he's probably locked him in the first round. And then Rich LeCount, who is one of my favorite Georgia Bulldogs. I talked about meeting the young man. He's an A1 kid, great character. When you watch LeCount's film, take away all the measurables, and you compare him to someone like Trayvon Merrick from TCU, film's really similar. Difference is Merrick is bigger, faster, better tools physically. LeCount at the pro day looked heavy and slow-footed. He timed at a 4'8", which is darn near undraftable <laughs> as a safety. And even though it's very likely those times aren't accurate, he was timed at four or five in high school, coming out of high school, and I don't think that he's really a 4-8 safety because, very simply, a 4-8 safety would get exposed in SEC play all the time. But it's disappointing to see that LeCount did nothing to help his draft stock. He measured in, I think, at just over 5'10, about 196 pounds. So he's not got great size or length. You knew he wasn't going to run great, but I was thinking he might run low 4-7, high 4-6. So running a 4-8 was pretty disastrous for him. You got to hope that for him, people look at the film. And say, hey, I see a ton of ball production, ton of playmaking, ton of intangibles, and I want this guy on my team. And I think he's definitely draftable. He has too good a film not to be draftable. But the idea of him being a day two pick, I think that's out the window. And you look at him being a mid to late round pick now. So please keep all those questions and comments coming. We'll be back in the next few days with some Braves content in a title theory. Breakdown of Zack Snyder's Justice League with a guest that we are trying to pull over from one of our YouTube channel friends. This is Dave Bethany with the AmpSider on Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.